Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. In a world where jobs are how most people make money. One man, one desire, one challenge, dares to break the mold. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network, where we don't work for money. Money works for us. Coming soon, viewer discretion advised. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network, where cash flow is king. Real estate investing, the means, so you can enjoy your retirement dreams. This is the show where we cut right to the chase. No sales pitch, no long monologues, just simple how-to real estate investing advice, so you can earn the passive income you need to enjoy your retirement today. And now, your host and chief old dog, Bill Manacero. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network. I'm your host, Bill Manacero, and this is the show where 50 plusers and anyone else who wants to join us get solid, no sales pitch real estate investing advice to help generate real cash flow. This podcast airs twice weekly on Mondays and Fridays, and if you aren't already a subscriber, go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, type in Old Dog, spelled D-A-W-G-S, find our podcast, and subscribe. Well, we have a great uh, guest for this uh, show. I'm really excited about it, uh, a guy with a great background and uh uh, has uh, just uh, really been crushing it in his business. We're going to be hearing more about that as well. But I'm uh, talking about Garrett Moore. Garrett is a co-founder and CEO at Agoras. Garrett brings a career of executive level leadership and technology expertise to the construction industry. He earned a degree in mechanical engineering from Stanford University and a master's in cybersecurity from Tel Aviv University. Garrett is an Olmsted Scholar, prior college athlete, and Navy veteran. Hey, thank you for your service. Man, awesome. Awesome to have you on, Garrett. Thanks for joining us here at the Old Dogs REI Network. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, it's, it's our pleasure. Um, uh, I am really, really interested in your, your background and the things you've done. You've got a, a, just an amazing background here. And uh, I'm sure there's a, you know, a lot of things we're going to kind of go off in, into different areas in. But uh, uh, before we get started, I thought uh, maybe you could just kind of give us a little bit about your background and, you know, where you where you grew up and, and how you kind of came to be in the position that you are today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, never in a million years would have thought that this were and end up uh, 
grew up in Arizona. Uh, mom was a flight attendant. Dad was a high school teacher. Uh, sports and school were kind of big uh, priorities for us growing up. Time goes on. Uh, later on in high school, had the opportunity to keep studying and keep playing sports at Stanford, which was a huge, um, huge lifelong dream and a, and a tremendous blessing. Uh, you, you get to Stanford though, and, and very quickly you realize, oh my gosh, I don't belong here. <laughs> I am neither talented enough nor smart enough to be included in this group. Humbled, but just like one of these doesn't belong. So there's definitely a healthy dose of imposter syndrome, but um, got to play football there, got to play quarterback. It was a tremendous experience. But like I said, you, you quickly see the handwriting on the, wall, on the wall and say, yeah, the NFL is not in my future. But I love the team environment and I love that atmosphere. Uh, I think I was I was not ready to go into the business world at the time. I think I just I enjoyed team sports too much. Couldn't keep playing, so I kind of looked, started looking around. Looking back on myself, this looks like a stupid, stupid reason to do it. But I said, "Hey, the military is kind of sports for adults, right? Let's let's look into this." And so, started to to unpack what it would what it would be like to join the military, look into different branches, eventually start to look at special operations, and eventually come across yeah, the Navy SEALs. And the more time I spent in and around people in that community, the more intoxicated I became with the the culture, the values, the mission, the brotherhood and camaraderie, and eventually got to the point where I wanted to do nothing else. And so it wasn't until probably my, it was my red shirt sophomore year, decided this is worth leaving school early for, graduated early, picked up my commission and, uh, and went to BUDS and, uh, and then the rest is history. So did the usual deployments, uh, lots of time in the Middle East, like you mentioned, I think on the introduction, spent a couple of years as an Olmstead scholar, uh, living in Israel, studying Hebrew, getting my master's degree there. And then coming back off of that, I'm now in kind of the latter part of, of uh, my time, starting to feel the wear and tear. I'm three kids deep at the time, starting to build a house. And then I kind of stumbled headlong into construction. So that's kind of a long meandering way of how did I end up in real estate and construction, given that I have uh, no specific professional background prior to this. Wow. <laughs> that is a great story. Unbelievable. And uh, gosh, okay, graduating in your sophomore year, I'm sorry, but uh, you certainly <laughs> deserve to be at Stanford. My goodness. That well, is now looking back at it, it's like, what, what a stupid decision. Like, I, I should have just stayed in college because I had a once in a lifetime opportunity and I was in such a hurry to grow up and, and, and be an adult. And the reality is now looking back, I mean, it, it all works out. Married my high school sweetheart, like three beautiful kids, cannot complain at all. But part of me looks back and go, why did you leave school early? You, that was a great experience. Don't leave it. Oh, man. Yeah, that uh, that is uh, just an amazing story. Really, really great. Um, uh, and, you know, you're, you're an engineer, so it, it's not like, uh, you know, that you're that you're a stranger to putting things together and solving yeah. problems. So yeah. uh, it, it seems like a logical place to go. Um, yeah, I don't know where the security thing will come in there, but obviously there's <laughs> some element here. But uh, um, oh, that's, that's really great. That's really great. And I didn't know you were, uh, I mean, you were a Navy SEAL either. I mean, that's, that's uh, an amazing accomplishment. Um, 
uh, just uh, you seem like an overachiever here. <laughs> so it's uh, it's really good. I've got a, a son right now, a football player, a running back. We're you know uh, trying to do the same thing to him, trying to get him into the school of his 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 dreams. And uh, so I yeah, can awesome. understand uh, what you're going through, what or what you went through. That's just awesome. Well, um, okay, so you you got into this this area of uh, you know again it's it, it's very related to real estate by all means because without buildings and <laughs> houses yeah. and apartments or what have you um, we're not going to have anything to do in real estate investing so um, so uh, tell me a little bit about that now you you moved into your home you, you have three kids a wife you're you're starting out here now did you build your first house did you say or did I miss it I did no so no, I became an accidental an accidental developer which is how I ran into construction and real estate development so the, the, the short, I, I glossed over it a little bit because it's kind of the thrust of how I transitioned from, you know, seal life to starting a company in construction and real estate. So I, again, naive, naively thought, okay, it's 2016 at the time. Oh, we figured out construction and real estate development. This will be a piece of cake. And so I bought a piece of property in San Diego and, uh, ended up realizing it kind of turned into an accidental developer because it had several lots worth of property. And so I went to my mom and dad, again, not knowing anything about real estate and said, Hey, would you guys consider um, kind of doing a joint venture or maybe you buy one and we'll figure this out. And they eventually kind of connected the dots and said, yeah, let's do this. And so we had a little old 1960s three bed, one bath on a large lot in Coronado. And we said, okay, well, let's, let's tear the house down and put two homes on there. Okay, yeah, you know, pencil the numbers and you put your 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 pro forma using the term pro forma loosely because at that time it's like an Excel spreadsheet and you're just guessing. And then we start to look at this and go, okay, well, I think something about real estate tells me that there's there's a lot of value to to time. Let's build it offsite. And so we went through six or seven general contractors, tried to find a builder that would build offsite and therefore build it faster. And just kind of through this whole time, just getting bogged down and realizing how how old fashioned and backwards the construction industry is, we eventually end up building the home modularly up in a, a factory up in Idaho. And concurrently, the backstory is one of my childhood best friends, next door neighbor, prior teammate, godfather to my kids was was the third owner. So this property ended up having three lots. He's then building his home traditionally, the more you know, stick built by hand. And we're watching two case studies go up alongside each other. And it was from this that we realized, okay, construction and real estate, well, real estate is probably far more technologically advanced specifically than construction, but construction is bogging real estate down because it's like the old, the, the old adage, a camel is a horse designed by committee. You got 35 different parties all trying to build this structure. And then when you're building it yourself, you're kind of, you're watching this happen. So you're coming out to your house or to the job site and you're seeing the inefficiencies. And so that's where the personal passion and pain point for tackling construction and real estate came in was living it and being in the Middle East, trying to track down an electrician or a plumber because my wife's got three kids and she's like, there's nobody at the job site and it's leaking. You know, it, the, the usual stuff that, that people that interact with a, a, a remodel or a new build come, come away with. And I think I just lived it in a little bit more depth. And I finally got to the point where I was like, that's it. This is not acceptable. I will become the general contractor. I will teach myself about construction and real estate because I am not happy with the lack of professionalism and speed that I'm seeing. Wow. Now, this is, uh, yeah, I'm trying to get a grasp of this. Now, what what year was this that um, this occurred? So this was 2000. 
15, we tore the house down, started breaking ground in 2016, didn't move in till the end of 2018. So it took us a little over three years to do the project. And that's no slouchy area of San Diego. I mean, that's a very nice part of San Diego. So that it had, is, yeah, that yes. has to be a valuable piece of land, I would imagine. It was, and that's what started it is we went to my mom and dad and said, hey, mom and dad, we're basically eating top ramen macaroni and cheese. I'm on a military <laughs> salary. My wife doesn't work. We can kind of agree to, to to vacate our house if you can help, you know, pay for the cost of tearing it down, developing it, and the new construction. Then we'll kind of give you one of the lots when all is said and done. So we kind of very bootstrappy bankrolled our first real estate development with family, which is probably not the best thing to do. But I have a great relationship with my folks, and we now live next door to them, and it's it's awesome. Uh-huh. But that's that's essentially kind of how how it all came to be was realizing, okay, nice area, land is expensive. Regardless, almost regardless of how much construction costs are, if you build it and develop it, it'll be worthwhile. And now, you know, over the last five years in the San Diego market, it's it's absolutely been a fantastic decision and, and no regrets whatsoever. But it was it was a painful couple of years. Yeah, it uh, well, it's it just it blows my mind here because uh, you know here you you are you have never built a house before, okay, and so you didn't just do the regular like you know the sticks and uh, you know but the foundation and I mean you you went into building a modular home, okay, from yeah. scratch, okay. <laughs> so it's just it's just like was the challenge not big enough for you here? Okay, I'm gonna go, okay. <laughs> Now I'm going to make it into out of Legos. No, I mean, this is like, uh, that's amazing um, that you would do that. And and so didn't you have to have like an offsite facility to do that? Or I, yeah, <laughs> so this is now so the buy a warehouse or something. <laughs> uh, the biggest challenge I ran into, and this starts to get into kind of the, the, the company and what we started was the idea that very few people take an offsite approach to a custom design. In, in San Diego, we have a very specific design for a very specific lot shape. So uh, with the city and kind of the architect, we had to draft it in a very specific way. It, it had to match, you know, all the rules and setbacks and, you know, daylight planes and all the different rules that you have when you live in an urban environment. And so it was very difficult for us to find somebody that would help us build that. And so we ended up finding a like-minded partner that did kind of alpine kind of cabin homes out of Idaho. And that was the only person we could find. We tried a bunch of other folks and they said, hey, you know, I can do manufactured housing, which is what people um, pejoratively call double wides, which was not going to work and we can't stack them and they're not structurally you know, rated and all this other stuff. And so it took us a while to find a, a build partner that would do part of it. And then we were essentially responsible to coordinate the on-site installation and button up and connections and then all the finished details. And so it was, um, it would have been much easier if I had just built it on site by hand, but I didn't realize that at the time. And it, and I would imagine in San Diego too, and especially in Corona, that that area that you're in, I mean that um, that there would be, uh, I mean, some pretty uh, strict standards in terms of uh, you know building requirements and um, you know permits and and so forth to do that. I would imagine. Well, this gets into the the larger macro issue of of construction and real estate and and development which is a large part of why especially in higher red tape areas like california a large part of the reason we cannot develop faster is twofold one is a labor shortage and the second one is a building department or a, a a building culture that is so antiquated that you end up having all of these 
uh, fragmented rules and you've got Title 24 energy calculations and you've got specific zoning requirements based off of a city. And so it, it becomes very, very fragmented. And so we, as we went through this process, we realized that at the end of the day, a lot of this can be solved with computers. And a lot of this can you can bring best in breed technology to bear on an industry that just kind of hasn't evolved. And so when we look at the way we build structures, and I'm kind of saying like four stories and below light timber, we really haven't changed a whole lot in the last hundred years. Okay, so maybe we have nail guns now and we used to use hammers, but it's not like we've really evolved. When you look at other industries, how far we've come in the last century, it's drastically different and construction's still lagging behind. Interesting. Were you still using the same materials, though? That I mean, as far as two by four framing and, yep. and all of that. Okay, so it wasn't like you were doing some sort of a, you know, molds or, or something. Nope. That uh, okay, interesting. We just we what we had to do with the modular is essentially because the walls were closed and a, and a local building inspector in San Diego could not look inside. We had to get an offsite inspection. And so when you get into offsite inspections, it actually makes it a little bit more streamlined. You have somebody that comes to your factory, looks at the project, says, yep, that's the code. That's exactly like you told me you were going to build it. And nowadays with Zoom and 4K video, there's a whole bunch of other technology tools that can make this easier. And then the, the home essentially came with a certified stamp that says, hey, you know, this, this California building inspector certifies this home was built to plan. And then we pass that off to the inspector in San Diego. And he goes, okay, that's it. You know, my, my liability is covered. My exposure is there. A professional has looked at this. And so you're good to go. So there were lots of like aha moments for us. They were just not necessarily connected in a cohesive way, even though there was there was some cool stuff that was going on. Well, it's, I mean, it was a, an amazing exercise, but you know, at yeah. the same time, what was your what was your thought initially instead of building on site? I mean, you, you, um, was it you know the control aspect of it, or uh, I, what what was the, the the number one appeal for you? It was cost and time, and so when we when we look at you know kind of the state of the nation right now. We have a couple things that are going on at a macro level. This is, you know, independent of which geography you talk about. And one is obviously the labor challenge. And so the, the Census Bureau right now is saying that something like for every five folks retiring out of the trades, there's only two younger millennial Gen Z folks backfilling them. And what's 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 causing this is people are just not interested in the trades anymore. And as a result, the labor population, the quantity of the labor is drastically declining. And then also, therefore, the quality of the labor is declining. And so we're starting to see this experientially with inflation. But in construction, it's getting it's getting very, very acute. And so the quality of builds are going down and the prices of the labor component is going up. Concurrently, the other challenge we're facing is, is a lot of the supply chain challenges. And so when you think about a typical construction site, you got a lot of waste. You've got a lot of inefficiencies because everything is being done by hand on site. And so our theory was, well, if we build it offsite in a factory, it should use less labor. It should use labor in a cheaper area. And I should use less material because they can you know, optimize and, and control for that. And all of those things actually came to fruition. So we were drastically cheaper than building it on site. What I forgot to account for was the team that receives and then installs those modules still has to know how to connect. And so there was a lot of friction once we brought the modules to the job site that lost some of the efficiencies that we gained offsite. And I would imagine a, a big part of your job would be um, 
basically creating the model and and being able to I mean to, you know, to actually put the puzzle together when you get there, right? So you have to yeah. you have to have you know connect A to A to B to B, what have however you yep. in a structure. This is from my exactly. simple mentality here. But yeah. was that a sort of prototype for the house that you built next door for your parents there? So we ended up doing them really in parallel. And so we, t- we did the oh, okay. same process at the same time. And so each home is essentially four modules and it, it worked. Now that the caveat would be, my wife would tell you, we made some serious architectural compromises in order to build offsite. And I think it, w- it was good and it was necessary at the time because it's all we could afford. But I think if you could go back now, she, she wishes that she had a lot more, a lot more latitude. And that's the beauty of, of what you get when you build traditionally kind of by hand. Now, where these two intersect starts to migrate into what launched or, or the, the genesis for the company we started came from this and watching the two technologies and going, there's got to be a better way. And so where, where we as a company came in and started from the ashes of this project was the idea that offsite construction carries tremendous advantages. My phone, my computer, my, my uh, table, my chair, everything I build or everything I interact with on a daily basis is manufactured at volume. So why not houses? And our, our belief is that in general, mainstream America has not uh, received the benefits of offsite construction because most people don't want to live in little boxes or cubes. If that was the case, Ikea could have knocked out construction a long time ago. But people want to live in something that looks like a house. And so nobody's been able to bend offsite construction to the design style that people want. And so what we said is rather than the stick built or the modular approach that we live through, let's build a technology that can have the best of both worlds. And so what we did was we created a kind of a patented manufacturing process as well as a really high tech software that essentially I'm going to use a really poor analogy. But the analogy is you let somebody design whatever structure they want. And so somebody decides they want to they want to build the Death Star. Well, they send the software a picture of the Death Star, and the Death Star then says, "Okay, now I'm going to tell you how many black Lego bricks and gray Lego bricks you need to manufacture so that you can reassemble that Death Star on the backside." Well, in this context with houses, and this could be backyard granny flats, it could be single family, it could be multifamily, it could be apartments. It does not matter. What we do is we deconstruct that custom design down to a series of 2D panels. And so when you build those 2D panels, your walls, your floors, and your roofs become a series of straight lines. Well, what those straight lines allow you to do is you can create any custom complex structure, but you can manufacture it very quickly on an assembly line, and then you can ship it flat stacked, and then you can therefore assemble it at the job site very, very quickly. So the idea was that it gives you the best of, of all worlds where you can have your cake and eat it too. Interesting. Now, did you actually assemble the house um, on the, the 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 development site that you were building? Um, I, I'm putting the whole place together, or you just you just worked with the individual panels? So, in in my project specifically, I did it volumetrically, which means all the panels were put together in cubes before they got there, and that's one of the things that was causing huge problems when we launched the business that year as the project was buttoning up we said hey we're not going to do this approach because this is not the right way to go about it we're going to build a new technology that is more scalable and can meet our developer customers wherever they are in whatever design they want and 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 kind of create a more automotive like efficiency for construction 
Interesting. Wow. Yeah, that's what I would imagine would be would you know would be a part of the challenge is um, you know putting some walls together, sending the walls over there, but they don't fit right together um, when you get there. You know, where you, if you don't have a chance to sort of assemble it prior to, um, I guess there's some things you're just going to learn you know right on the right on the spot there. Ironically, that's actually not much of a problem. So our manufacturing tolerances are so tight. Uh, it's the beauty of staying in the digital world. And so when an architect designs a home, he designs it how he wants it. And those that CAD file stays accurate. And so we build to exactly what the CAD file is. And so by controlling our tolerances in a factory, it actually makes on-site installation very easy because it's perfectly accurate. There's no human error that goes into it. And then there's other tools. So we have some cloud point laser scanners where you can, you know, make sure everything at the job site is exactly how it is, how it needs to be. But the general idea is that if you stay digital, you're fine. But the way we build construction right now is kind of a digital log, digital to analog to digital to analog kind of back and forth conversion with the way that we we currently build as a nation. Interesting. When you started this process, did you already have a business in mind or did that happen in process? We did not have a business model in mind. It was mostly as we watched this unfold that we said to ourselves, holy smokes, there's a business model here. Don't exactly know what it is yet, but there's an opportunity because this is unacceptable. And I think it was kind of the the pain point that was created at a personal level through the process and the project ended up forming the genesis for the business model. And then once you do the business model, you start to research a whole bunch of other things. So we traveled around the world, saw how other people build, started to explore and unpack different technologies. And there's people that lay bricks with a bunch of robots or people that you know 3D print cement homes. And there's all kinds of other ways to skin this. But ultimately what we came back to was, we wanna build a technology that can meet owners and developers where they are with the materials that they're used to in the neighborhood that they want to build in and make it as easy for them to adopt as possible. Got it. Now, were you working full time still with the Navy at that time or had you already left the, you know, the service or what was happening with you at that time? (laughs) So three young kids, um, and and uh, absolutely loving being a dad, I was starting to see and feel that the wear and tear of of deployments and being gone from them. So that was already going on in the background. Mm. I was leaning towards getting out, but this is what officially pushed me over the edge because it was the first problem that I felt like was really challenging and and wholly immersive, and and a problem that's worth worth solving. And so this is what kind of pushed me over the edge. So when I did that, I ended up uh, leaving the military, separating. And then jumping right in to start the company full time. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And um, how how soon after you had built the house did you do that? Uh, we actually founded the company uh, before I had even moved into the house, so it was in the process of getting done, and we were already laying the groundwork for for launching Agoras. Okay. Now let's uh, let's talk about the name here. What, what, what's the uh, what's the genesis behind the name of Agoras? Well, the genesis is twofold. One is in this day and age, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office does not let you. Uh, there's just so much noise out there. There's so many different names and permutations that trying to find a good defendable trademark is is pretty tricky, and so you have to get a little bit more clever. And one of the passions Kyle and I have is is this idea that the home is where you raise your kids. It's the center place of your life. It's where you. Uh, it's the central marketplace. And in, in, in ancient Greek, the Agora was exactly that. It was a, common, a marketplace where the common man had a vote, could come in and speak 
and really do business and interact. It was the center center point of their social social life. And, and we wanted to make sure that despite the business model and the unit economics and the ROI and all the other things that you look at when you try and build a business or build an endeavor, that we did not lose sight of the human component of the home, recognizing that somebody's going to live here and this is this is going to be where they where they raise a family or where they whether they grow old here or where whatever it is and so it's it's making sure that we did not lose that human component mm, that's it that's excellent okay <laughs> when it built these these properties and how did you move forward and uh, did you start develop you know contacting developers were you you know presenting the the ideas were you funding i mean uh maybe yeah. it was all of the above but uh you know just give me a rough idea how you grew to where you are today so what we did is we ended up finding a early angel investor that was a large publicly traded real estate developer so it's a company called kennedy wilson out of la and um ended up that their senior leadership happened to be good friends uh of ours, and we just kind of approached them not even actually looking for money but just asking for mentorship hey guys here's what we're trying to do in the space etc they said wait a minute Okay, you're gonna need some capital. Do you have an investor? I'm like, no, we're still kind of looking. I said, hang on a sec. So that you know, it kind of kicked us out of the room and brought us back in 15 minutes later. I'm like, hey, this is a problem that's got to get solved. Let let us let us bankroll you guys. Let us invest and, and get you guys to a proof of concept. So they they made a little bit of an angel investment. Uh, it was a ton of money at the time, and um, for them it was probably a rounding error. And, and so to us, we're like, oh my gosh, we've arrived. You, you don't need any more money to grow a business than this. Little do you know, it takes a lot of cash. And so then what we set out was that was uh, 2019, we raised capital. And so by within the year, we wanted to have a proof of concept. So we went out and with that, we bought some machinery, uh, launched our first beta version of the software and did our first build. And so we did a, a development build. It was a kind of a high-end coastal home up in Venice Beach. It was like, ended up being a three and a half, four million dollar build. And to establish and show that this works and this works in high-end areas. This is not 3D printed homes. This is not Section 8 housing. Like This can be used for customers and developers to turn out properties faster. And so from that, that then served as the launching platform for us to do a few more projects in San Diego and then go out and raise first institutional money. And so that was all of 2020. And then late 2020 into early 21, we went out and raised first institutional money. So Blackhorn Ventures is a venture technology company out of Colorado combined with Toyota Ventures, which is obviously the, the, the venture arm of the auto manufacturer, and then several other kind of high-tech Silicon Valley or venture-based firms decided to invest in us and say, okay, now let's see you guys ramp this up for, for, for scale. And so that's where we spent a lot of our time in 2021, establishing the factory, further growing the team and really starting to build out product. And now here we are into 2022. And the good news is we have far more demand than we even have capacity. So now we're in the process of standing up new factories basically as quickly as we can to meet, to meet production. And what we're finding is that across the country now, there's like five or six major areas that account for almost half of U.S. construction. It's the coastal California, Southern California market, Phoenix, Tucson, um, kind of central Texas, Florida, and then kind of the Nashville, Atlanta, Carolinas corridor over in there. That's where the vast majority of construction is going on. And then that's therefore where we're trying to expand. Hmm. Where is your, uh, your factory located? So right now, our first factory is outside of San Diego. Second and third factories are going to be in also in San Diego and then in the kind of Phoenix, Tucson area. And that should be within the next nine to 12 months. 
Wow. I mean, you're moving fast. I mean, this is, uh, this... We are probably a little too fast. So sometimes the wheels on this bus start to wobble a little. I'm okay with the wobble. I'm just not okay with the wheels falling off. <laughs> well, it, it sounds like you have uh, done incredibly up to this point. Um, um, it's uh, are, are you looking at uh, homes across the spectrum? I mean, and are you looking at commercial buildings or just residential homes? So we, our technology lends itself well to anything that can be built from light timber. And so in most parts of the country, that equates to four or five stories and below. You start going vertically beyond that, and you need a lot more steel and concrete usually. So I would say our bread and butter is ADUs, which are these backyard kind of granny flats in California that are exploding right now. That's big. Single, yeah. single family, so one and two story homes. And then um, the third bucket is kind of uh, light multifamily. So townhomes or like uh, a lot of times, especially in California, you're seeing like a garage floor and then two living floors above that. So kind of the three-story multifamily are, are our bread and butter. Uh, and, and the good part is that even in those, there's a lot of construction happening. We have not tackled the kind of mass market apartment buildings yet, but that's on the long-term horizon. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. And um with um, um, you know, you're not dealing with consumers generally. You're dealing with developers, right? I mean, people that are going to exactly. do big projects. Yes. They need a lot yes. of homes, and they need them quick. <laughs> yes, and that's where we can really help them out is is value engineering and helping make smart construction decisions like a real estate investor, rather than um, just somebody that's going to you know slam some nails into boards. Right. Right. Um, well, I, this is uh, just an amazing, um, just an amazing story. And just even having you, you evolved into where you are today is just um, even more amazing. Um, what uh, I imagine, you know, in this process too, and you, you definitely have an engineer's brain. You have to, to be able to do what you've uh -huh. done. Um, what uh, you, you had to encounter some, some challenges, some, you know, what do we call sort of mistakes that we learn from yeah. and it makes us that much more effective in the future. What would you say some of those, those situations were? I wish I could use the past tense. Like they're in the past and I'm <laughs> not still making said mistakes. Um, that's like the old, I think it's Mark Twain quote, you know, I've just discovered a thousand ways that this is not going to work. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I would say the biggest starting point is a recognition that you have to stay focused. And so I think where we've made our biggest mistakes is looking at this elephant to eat that we need to eat and not taking it one bite at a time. And construction and real estate are so interconnected that you can't pull on a building department thread without getting into material science, without getting into constructability, without getting into historical tradition. And so everything is so interconnected. The analogy I use, it's like a pile of tangled hangers. You have to pick each hanger out one at a time because if you try and pull them all out together, they just kind of collect on each other. And so it's um, if I had to say one, one word, it's focus. That is the name of the game for us as a business. And I would say that probably transcends a lot of industries. You know, when you look at probably a lot of your folks that are getting into real estate and development, it's, hey, what is my core niche? What's my geography? What's my target vertical? And when we all stay focused as individuals and as investors and as business leaders, it's it's probably the greatest source of leverage. That said, I'm probably the worst, you know, shiny object chaser in the world. And so fighting that urge to tackle new problems is probably the biggest mistake that we make on an ongoing basis. Mm. Yeah, I would imagine um, 
developing a long-term plan and uh, <laughs> and backing off from anything that's you know five years down the road um, would be very helpful and just staying you know focused on on the projects at hand and and leveraging yeah. off of those but um, what, what would you say that you've done that has been uh, a success something you initiated early on that has really played out well for you uh, as you as you're moving forward I think the biggest thing that we've done well is double down on our team. We might be wrong. We might be making a lot of mistakes, but to a person, everybody at the company, um, their, their biggest takeaway from us is that we, we are building a team that we really care about. And that has been really helpful because as we're trying to break into an older industry or we're trying to disrupt the status quo, you're going to break some eggs and you're, you're going to make mistakes and you're, you're really blazing a trail. And so if you don't, if the people that are on board with you, are looking to run, you know, a clean paved path, they're not going to like this because you're just kind of bushwhacking. And so really investing in that team and partnering with them and making sure they have the gas in the tank, their wives, their kids, their family, that, that they're fully bought in to the, to the mission. That's been hugely helpful. And I think it's, it's helped us float through some, you know, some rough patches when we made mistakes or, you know, had to do some U-turns. And how many employees do you have uh, currently? Right now we're in the high fifties and we're, we're on track to try and triple that by the end of this year. Has it been challenging in light of the you know, employment situation just nationwide? <laughs> Holy smokes. Absolutely. Now that said, it's a double edged sword because the labor market is tight. It makes it, it tough. You just, you're not going to go on Craigslist or indeed and be able to scrape really good talent. But at the same time, the inverse has also been true. When you come across a company that is trying to tackle a really challenging problem with a, a group of people that really care about each other and a very mission-focused organization, we believe and we've found so far that that can be a, a seductive appeal to people that are already well-employed, well-paid, and happy with their jobs to try and pry them loose to come work for us because I, I believe we're unique. And everybody you know, kind of puts lip service to, oh, yeah, we care about our team and people first and all this kind of other stuff. But I think genuinely when they spend time with us, they really realize that we are 100% sold on our team. Because at the end of the day, when, when we kind of take a step back as a business, our fundamental belief is that profit is like air. It's not why you breathe. It's necessary to breathe for sure. But People are really what are going to drive this business, and that's what we obsess about, our people, our customers who are also people, our partners, et cetera. And then if you get the people right, then the product and the profit are going to naturally take care of themselves in due time. Mm, that's it. That's great. Wow. That's uh, very impressive here. Um, our audience, are, our folks, our target audience, really, we have a, a lot of people across the the age spectrum and and career spectrum and so forth, but uh, we're really looking at folks that are fifty years of age and older. They're approaching retirement or they're already in retirement, and they're looking at you know real estate and real estate investing and investing in general as a, as a, a means to either sustain them, uh, increase their their cash flow that uh, they may have now, or um, actually to leverage maybe the nest egg that they have for their retirement. Uh -huh. Um, what what kind of uh, advice would you have for those folks um, in looking at what you do and, and how it may be beneficial for them? So I believe that the timing is actually perfect for this. So now my inner American would say that with rising interest rates, home ownership is going to take a huge hit, and that's not good for society. Now, that said, the inner capitalist in me says this is a perfect time for real estate investing because one of the 
one of the things that I see at a macro level is an acute supply shortage. And I don't mean supply chain, I mean supply of units. I believe that sleeping out of the rain is not going out of style. So people are still going to want to live in houses. This is not a fad. And so given that, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are telling us we're about five and a half million units cumulatively underwater since the global financial crisis of 08. That has not gotten unearthed because we just can't produce enough to keep up with it. So yes, the Fed is raising rates. And yes, people are freaking out. Got it. But for people that have money on the sidelines and are looking to invest in real estate, the timing is perfect because what we're starting to see is rents are just going to take off, which is going to produce a tremendous amount of return for those investors. And the construction industry is still primed and ready to continue building. It's just going to change who the eventual owner is. And so people that were doing a you know buy to, to live or buy to own are now going to start pivoting because they might not be able to afford that mortgage. And it's going to be kind of a build to rent model. And so I believe that the timing is outstanding for this. And it's starting to become so common across the country. You almost can't go wrong in any geography right now because the supply shortage is so acute across the board. Well, that's why, yeah, when you say the time is right, I mean, with supply chain issues, with, uh, uh, you know, cost of, uh, you know, construction when you can get the materials, um, you know, the, the shortage of talent and, and you know, qualified people to, to build, um, I would say your timing couldn't be any better. And uh, um, yeah. you, now, one thing you didn't address here is that you're able to, as a result of this sort of modular approach, you you can build a house pretty quickly, right? Yeah. So our our vision as a company is to get to the point where consistently as a society, we're building units all across the country in under 30 days. And people look at me and go like, you're out of your mind. We're <laughs> at seven or eight months. There's no way. And I appreciate that. However, my counter argument is it's actually back to the future. So most people don't know this, but there was a company. So NVR is one of the largest home builders in the country. Their predecessor was a company called Ryan Homes. Ryan Homes took a very similar business model approach to what we're doing, and they vertically integrated and they built their homes offsite as panels. They were doing it in 14 days in the 70s, and they were absolutely crushing their competition. Now, to be fair, they ended up buying the Pittsburgh Pirates and lost some focus, and there were some extracurricular activities that caused the core business model to, to suffer, but the concept absolutely knocked it out of the park. And so it can be done, and it should be done. And I believe we're on the precipice of society in construction to what we were with vehicles maybe five years ago, where we're looking at this going, well, you and I now might look at this and think electric vehicles are a foregone conclusion, but the internal combustion engine was still reigning supreme up until very, very recently. And so we view construction in the same way. We want to do to construction what Tesla did to Detroit. It doesn't mean that all vehicles are now electric. It just means that with their 2 3% market share, Tesla has moved the needle in a way where now people are looking at electric as the future for the auto industry. And we want to get to that point where within the next five years, people are seeing the exact same thing on construction going Every major builder is trying to pivot to offsite, trying to shift their portfolio over there. And we believe it's coming because of the confluence of labor costs, labor scarcity, et cetera. And are, um, do you have a means for investors to get involved uh, that would uh, be outside of your, you know, your, your private uh, funds that are coming in? 
At this point, we don't, but I'm never, never willing to turn down somebody that is, that's interested in investing in the company or looking for a way to, to, to deploy capital. Um, if maybe not through us, then there's other opportunities with, with other investors. I think one of, the, one of the niches that we don't have that we're looking to kind of partner with or create is finding somebody that wants to do real estate investment but really wants to find a process where they can turn and burn because this is where we can add so much value. And I'm looking at, I'm imagining you, you, you know, one of your listeners has uh, some capital that they want to deploy and they want to become a developer. And if they come across somebody that says, Hey, I can get you keys in 30 days or 40 days from the day you get permits, their ability to recycle capital to almost pre-sell units or pre-rent them, it starts to open up a whole new world. But if I come back to them and say, Hey, it's going to be nine months, that adds some serious cost and risk. And so I think we would be very interested in finding a long-term real estate development partner that wanted to take an offsite approach to injecting volume into the system in kind of a build-to-rent type way. That's great. Well, there's some major, we've had some folks on the show too that are just uh, just crushing it and, and, and build to rent, uh, especially in uh, sort of the, uh, um, the Tennessee areas, uh, n- near yeah. Nashville, south of Nashville, um, also into to Florida. So yeah, that's, a, that's a hot, hot area. What would be the smallest project you would take on? I think it depends on, is it a test balloon? Is it, hey, that's the steady state? Also depends a little bit on the geography and kind of the long-term partnership. I would say we can do single family houses. I think we just want to look at this stage in our company. We, you know, kind of going back to my statement about focus, we want to be very disciplined about aligning ourselves with long-term partners that believe in offsite construction and believe in high, high techifying this space. And, and we can kind of can see a, a long, a long-term progression and runway width. So if that's a first, you know, a first build together is, is just a unit. Okay. We can make that work. I think ideally the goal would be, you know, starting to look at somebody that has a pipeline and wants to really do this a lot. Gotcha. Yeah. I would think so. I mean, volume is, is what would really make you that, but you know, your business hum, I would imagine. Um, yeah. And, and if, to be clear, if somebody is outside of, so you know, we're in the Southern California, Arizona region right now. And if you called and said, Hey, Garrett, I've got, uh, I've got an investor that wants to really double down on this and they're located in Texas. We're going to build a factory in Texas. That partner might just help pull us to Texas sooner. So it's not that geography is off the table. It's that a demand signal with an acute uh, buyer would help pull us into those new geographies a lot quicker. And so that might be an opportunity to to jump one state or one geography to the front of the line in our progression when you know you've got a willing staple kind of anchor tenant customer there waiting for you. Yeah, definitely. Well, what, uh, where do you see your company in the next, you know, five, 10, 20 years down the road and what really excites you about the future? So our, our mantra, our, our kind of vision statement as a business is to be the largest builder in the country by the end of the decade. And by that, I don't mean that we're a vertically integrated full-blown developer and we're doing DR Horton style, you know, sales. It's that we're producing that number of units. And so right now, I think DR and Lennar are on track for 75 or 80,000 units a year. That's our goal is to be building a manufacturing engine that can produce 80 plus thousand units a year by the end of the decade. Wow. And our our belief is that, well, our knowledge is that it can absolutely be done. It's an operational challenge and we've got to scale up our manufacturing equipment, et cetera. But the technology already works. And there's no shortage of demand. So it's largely can we execute on the nuts and bolts of building a manufacturing business. But our theory is that, like Amazon, if you can learn to distribute books really, really well, 
adding in DVDs or maybe kids clothes or maybe grocery starts to become easier. And so when we look at expanding into construction, we see the ability to vertically integrate over time. It's not that I want to become vertically integrated today. I can't, I can't boil the ocean tomorrow. But if we, if we do get our nuts and bolts uh, accurate of our distribution of books, then vertical integration and expansion becomes a lot easier from there. And then we can get to the point where we look back at 2030 and go, yeah, do you remember? Hey, Bill, you remember that time when you, you know it used to be really common to build homes on site by hand with the same tools we did 100 years ago? <laughs> oh, yeah, it almost takes a nostalgia tone to it. Almost like my kids are going to grow up looking back on internal combustion engines or looking back on a manual transmission as like a relic from a bygone era. Mm, man, man. That's uh, that's great. That's exciting stuff, um, man. This has been yeah, this has been really fantastic. Uh, just uh, you know, just opened my eyes up, and uh, I, I had no idea that uh, you know you had ramped up so quickly too. And and that's I mean that's what's amazing, and which is also a good sign I would think for the future is that um, yeah. you know being able to scale is not going to be uh, you know a hindrance to you guys. Um, no. <laughs> so. Uh, that's great. Well, we we have a, a sec- section here that we um, call Wrap It Up, where I ask you a series of quick questions, kind of like a lightning round and resources yeah. that you've used and that have been of value to you. And if you are ready, we can go ahead and, and wrap it up. Absolutely. Let's All do right. it. All right. Well, uh, a favorite real estate book or somewhat related real estate book, you know, it could be on construction or it could be on, on uh, development or what have you. It's actually a little bit of a hybrid, and it was uh, a book I read my high school economics teacher made me read called Millionaire Next Door. And it may not be my favorite book, but it was highly transformative for me to look at wealth building as an exercise in patience and frugality rather than, oh, just roll the dice on the lottery or expect fame or fortune. And so it kind of took a much much longer approach to the way that I look at accumulating wealth and the role that real estate can play in that because real estate is such an outstanding asset. If you take a long approach, if you take a speculative, hey, I got to flip it tomorrow, then it it becomes a little bit trickier or a little bit riskier. But it was highly transformative for me to lay the foundation for thinking about real real estate investing down the road. Wow, that's great. That's great. Uh, How about a favorite business book that's really uh, uh, of value to you today? I'm a huge Jim Collins fan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, Good to Great has, has always been kind of a staple that I keep going back to. And and every time I kind of revisit things in the company, I look back to some of the, the principles that, that he espouses across his, his portfolio of books. And they all kind of nest within each other. But I would have to say that's one of my good go-tos. Excellent. Yeah, great, great books. Um, how about a, a website that's uh, been valuable to you? Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to get a, a, a little, or I'm going to try not to get political here, but, uh, one of my favorite websites is the economist. Mm. And the reason I say that is because I really like being reminded that there's a very big world out there that's bigger than Garrett's little bubble. And so I, I don't know that I necessarily have a ton of passion about Pakistani politics or, you know, Indian manufacturing or, you know, whatever's going on. But like by, by, by seeing and understanding what other parts of the world are dealing with from an economic or political or religious perspective has been highly helpful for me to just remind myself to look up every now and then and go, there's a lot more to life, Garrett, than, than your first world problems that you live in with your bubble and your company, et cetera. So probably not the typical answer, but it's just also nice to think about the world. And it's also nice to, I find, to look at an outsider's perspective on America and kind of 
maybe look in the mirror through somebody else's lens. So I, I've always appreciated that. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, I mean, I would think that your business, unless you've got your, 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 you know, your, you know, hand on the pulse of the economy and, and what's happening, not only in the U.S., but globally, um, it's, uh, it would be a, 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 a you know, I, I think of something really would take away from what you're trying to do. I mean, because I, I think what you're doing is so right for today's economy and what's happening that uh, I think, you know, even in the, the the broader political spectrum as well as, you know, the just the global politics and things that are happening, uh, they all impact <laughs> a lot of what you're doing. So, yeah. Well, how about a favorite app that you use? All right. So I'm going to show off my nerdy um, cybersecurity background. Uh, in this day and age, the strength of a password is one of the most important things that you can do to protect your identity, your money, your all the above. Unfortunately, none of us are equipped. And by human instinct, we tend to repeat passwords. Uh, mm -hmm. It's one of the number one exploited things that, that hackers will use. So I'm a huge fan of a, a, an app called One Password. And it helps me create random, randomly generated passwords. I aggregate them all in one place. And so I have probably 250 high strength, unique passwords that my wife and I share across the app. And so everything that we do is random. I, I could not even tell you that a password to a single thing I own, except my one master password. And so when you use it on a phone, when you use it on a phone with your face ID, you can get, you get the convenience of uh, one single password, which is essentially your face. But at the same time, you have tremendous amount of depth and complexity to your passwords across all your different accounts. So I've loved it. I think I'm going to, when we get off this call, I am going to download that. <laughs> just, I am so, I am so tired of being asked for my passwords that I have no yes. clue when I, you know, picked yes. five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, no, no they, they're a great app. That's great. I love it. And uh, how about a, a favorite quote? One of my favorite quotes is uh, from a German theologian. I'm going to butcher his name. I think it's Rupertus Medenius. Um, it's somewhat famous, but it's uh, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And the reason I'm really bullish on this quote right now is just we live in a society that's super divided. And, and every single thing that we look at tends to be a hill to die on for people. And it could be masks. It could be COVID. It could be politics. It could be whatever it is. And so I've always loved that because it helps me kind of redefine, like, what are the core building blocks of, of things that I really, really care about that are my hills to die on? That is, that is that, those are things I, I want unity on. But for a, a lot of non-essentials, there's a tremendous amount of liberty and charity. And, and I think that that's helped me kind of navigate the last couple of years, especially because it's just, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a crazy couple of years. And, uh, and so I, I found that to be tremendously helpful for me to reflect on and, and meditate on. That's great. And then this final question here, if something catastrophic happened, you lost your business, absolutely everything, uh, all your assets are gone, all you have is $1,000 in cash, what would you do with that $1,000 to rebuild your business? Huh. So this is very specific to where I live, but right now I mentioned this earlier, ADUs are absolutely exploding across the, across the state. And they're, they're very unique in that they have a tremendous amount of leverage. So an ADU in Southern California might, you know, a, a two bed, one bath, 750 square foot little granny flat might rent for like three grand, mm -hmm. but it obviously does not cost that much to build. So what I would try and do is I would try and find a partner that would allow me the ability to just get into a house somehow and then I would bootstrap and I would essentially build that backyard ADU myself 
And then I would in turn try and cut a deal with, with that investor or family member or whatever to own some of that instant equity. And then I would then use that equity, hopefully 50, 100, 150 grand to then go ahead and get into my second home. And so I would use my primary occupancy capability to help me try and restart that business. It's mm, a great idea. I, I, I've had a, a couple of folks on that are just going gangbusters with ADUs right now uh, in uh, uh, Orange County. Yeah, right now. But wow. Yeah. Well, um, I'm sure there's folks that want to find out more about you, your company, what you do. What, what's the best way for people to find that info out? The easiest thing is probably LinkedIn. Um, and just go to our LinkedIn page and, and connect with me directly. Um, they can also go to our website. We're actually in the process of kind of rebuilding and rebranding our website because it's um, it's kind of like an early Gen 1 version that's not fully polished and ready to go yet as we've scaled up. Um, but they're welcome to go to our website, agorus.com, A-G-O-R-U-S.com. But if they want to connect with me a little bit more personally, then LinkedIn is, is absolutely the easiest and best way to do it. Uh, great, great. Well, well, this has been awesome having you on here. Just, uh, man, time just sped by. I, I and I didn't even ask anywhere near the the questions I wanted to. You know? <laughs> it's all good. But uh, well, we may have to have you back, you know, and uh, part two or I something here. Um, we are called though the Old Dogs REI Network, and I know you're you're still a young pup yet, but uh, you know, <laughs> one day, <laughs> one day. <laughs> Absolutely. And we have this tradition on our show where our guests get to close us out with their best old hound dog howl so you know i know there's some dogs down in san diego way i was born in san diego you know there was dogs no in my neighborhood yes <laughs> so uh i know there's dogs down there so you it's go ahead and give us your best uh old hound dog howl to close us out today probably a puppy howl at my age but oh 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 Oh, that was good. That was a, that was a daddy uh, howl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I cannot thank you enough, uh, Garrett. This has been awesome having you on, and uh, what My a great pleasure, subject. Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, just uh, excellent stuff. Excellent information. Hope it stirs up some some new business for you. You never know what'll happen here. So, uh, thank you, and thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Look forward to chatting again sometime. You bet. And I want to thank all our old dog listeners out there, too, for joining us. I know there's a lot of other things you could be doing right now, but the fact that you've taken the time to join us means a lot, and we really appreciate it. Now, please note, everything that Garrett talked about today will be outlined in detail in our show notes at Old Dogs' website at olddogsreinetwork.com forward slash blog, and you're going to look for the episode with Garrett Moore. Well, that is the show for today. Remember, cash flow is king and real estate investing the means. Until next time, keep moving forward and may God bless. Thank you very much for visiting the Old Dogs REI Network. We would greatly appreciate if you would stop by iTunes and let us know what you think of the show. We would love if you could subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star rating, and write a review. The more ratings and reviews we receive, the more visible the podcast will be to others. Thank you.
Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh, oh. 